The COVID pandemic and need to physically distance from people not in our homes has made it difficult to maintain friendships or casual relationships while being stuck at home with a significant other for months on end can make even the biggest house seem tiny. COVID's impact on relationships, sex, and dating is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me today are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard, I'm going to start that over again. Joining me today are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Debbie Herbenick. Herbenick is a professor in Indiana University's School of Public Health and is the principal investigator of the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior. An award-winning researcher and educator, she's also the author of five books, including Because It Feels Good, A Woman's Guide to Sexual Pleasure and Satisfaction, the I Love You More book, and the Corgasm Workout. She's also the founder and host of the Bloomington Sex Salon. Debbie, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. There's so many directions our conversation can go in, but I guess just to get the conversation started, if you were going to write a story about sex or intimacy during COVID, what would the headline for that story be? Oh, I've never been good at headlines. I don't know. Or the focus. I I think it's mixed. Like it's a mixed story. So what, what are some of the, what are the components of that mixture? You know, when when COVID first hit and we went, you know, a lot of us were under various forms of lockdown or stay-at-home guidance, I think one story that I anticipate coming out at some point about this period is, is what a rush there was to do research that wasn't necessarily well done. And, oh. you know, in my field, what I saw was a real rush, right, to be first, to be quick. Uh. And what that meant was there were so many Twitter surveys there were so many like social media convenience surveys, you know, with rapid publications that followed them uh, telling the world what sex was like. And I never think we should give those surveys too much weight um, because they they tend to be very specific audiences, right? And that's going to vary by field. But, you know, in my field, there were some sex surveys that were being tweeted out, you know, like the, the recruitment notices were being tweeted out by sex research or education Listserv. So in other words, the participants are going to be disproportionately sex researchers, educators, or therapists. They were being tweeted out by the, the sex researcher teams, right, and sex <laughs> researcher organizations. And, and so I don't give those a lot of weight. And I don't know how much that was happening in other fields. But I think, you know, it, it will take some time for the more well-done studies to come out. Um, we were really lucky. We did a nationally representative survey during April lockdown. So we actually got some good quality data. That happened in the UK from like our um, sort of uh, parallel group, if you will, that does a lot of the nationally, that does the nationally representative surveys in the UK around sex. I've seen around the world some studies that already had longitudinal studies in place, right? They already had their cohort of participants. Those will take longer to come out um, <laughs> as they as they regroup and survey or interview their participants at different time. But those are the ones I'm really looking to. So I think, you know, for me, what I'm seeing is right now a lot of noise mm-hmm. um, and some time for it to settle and for us to understand the different phases of change and influence for sex and relationships, but also the different types of groups, 
where the effects have been more pronounced because they haven't been even. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at with the mixed part too, is that, you know, for something like sex and relationships, it's really different if you are partnered and generally happy and stable in your relationship and your home together versus if you have a lot of conflict in your relationship already and now you're stuck together or if you have no partner that you live with. Um, so, you know, so those are some very different, I think, trajectories for sex and relationships. Do you have an early hypothesis about something that you thought you would see and you're looking at that you're willing to talk about yet? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that that we saw that I don't think we were able to, to disentangle enough with like the, the limited nature, like we had very limited funding to do our nationally representative survey in April. But one thing that we saw was that there were sort of like this diversity of sexual behaviors at people's most recent sexual event, but that orgasm rates were were lower. Um, and, and that's interesting, right? So, I mean, is that a reflection of the stress? Is that a reflection of, um, you know, sort of more of the tone of, of what's going on? So people having the sex, but not necessarily having this, the same response that we would have predicted. Um, so I think, you know, that that's one thing. I mean, early on, people were predicting rising rates of intimate partner violence, and that's that's certainly come to fruition. That's not my particular area, but I follow some of that work. So did you have this this national survey, you know, previously, was this planned in advance of the pandemic or was this something that you, that you had in play? It wasn't. And it was one of those things that as we were doing it, we we're like, why are we doing this? <laughs> do we really need one more thing to do? Um, right. Because many of us actually have small kids who are on the team and we were moving our courses online and doing all of this with, um, you know, homes to manage, families to manage. But we also saw it as a really unique time because it wasn't just COVID, but it was April 2020 stay-at-home guidance. So that seemed unique and important, and we and we did it. Um, but we're a team who's done this 12 other times, right? So we we know how to do it, and in that sense, we had a lot of the same items that we could pull from. We had some new folks join the team who are epidemiologists who are doing COVID-related work and could help us pull um, more of the items specific to things like you know, COVID, but but from an emerging body of research, right? That stuff was coming out, preprints were coming out daily for us to kind of look at what items people were using and, and what maybe we could use to to draw comparisons with other surveys through common data elements. So so some of it we were able to do rapidly because we had the the team infrastructure, but it, it was still a lot to pull off um and to get funding for. We were really grateful. Um, you know, Pure Romance, who's actually a company that that we've had long partnerships with and they do, um, they sell products around sexual enhancement. So vibrators, lubricants, sexual wellness products. And they were, you know, they were also wondering, right, how things were changing. So they really gave us some some funds to support that work. And so did our school, Indiana University. Um, we applied for a couple grants there too. So we did what we could in a limited um, amount of time and budget but it was it was a lot to try to do and to try to think about what do we need to understand now during this unique time that's certainly only going to last a month, right? You know, like, <laughs> yes, yeah. everyone right. in April was thinking yeah. that, right? <laughs> what advice would you give to people who are reading news about sex and relationships during COVID? I just saw something earlier today when I was prepping for this about how, you know, everyone thought there was going to be a COVID baby boom. And now they're saying, actually, there might be a COVID baby bust. So I wonder if... 
there seems to be so much people are wanting to write about this topic. What advice would you give to the, con- the news consumer as far as how to judge something that's worth maybe paying attention to? Yeah, I think it's always difficult to judge as a consumer what to pay attention to. I think, uh, and I think that goes back many years pre-COVID. Um, you know, when I think about, um, you know, the the sort of golden era, if you will, of Gawker and all of those other blogs. And it just, there was so much clickbait, right? And I still think that's the case. You know, just earlier today on my Facebook, I saw one of those memories, right, from years ago that comes up about my sort of now annual warning to people about, oh, Valentine's Day is coming up. Get ready for all the fake surveys that are going to come out in the media. Um, you know, poor methods, uh, random, random comments that aren't really telling us much about sex. So I think that in general, we need more um, support at early ages for thinking critically about the news we consume. I think we've seen the political, um, you know, implications for that in recent years, too, uh, about what, yeah, sort of what people draw on. I mean, I can remember even during the presidential campaign, you know, back in like 2015 and 16, and I would get these emails from journalists wanting me to comment on comments Trump would make about penis size and hand size. And I would refuse to comment on them. I'm saying, this is clickbait. This is a way to get, you know, a a politician's name in the news. I'm not doing it, right? I'm not participating in that. So I think, I think we all just need to be better about thinking, what are we sharing to actually provide knowledge or to promote discussion versus what are we creating just to get some ad revenue um, or just to get, like in my field, just to get our name in the news. Um, I I see that so often. And I try to, in my own grad student training, try to caution against that perspective. So do you talk to, I know when you first appeared on our podcast, I wasn't here. And I know you talked about some of the trivial things that journalists may ask you because they're looking for a headline or they're looking for a story which has some conflict and drama. That's partly a flaw that journalism has that those of us that teach it or have taught it uh, address that. Uh, Have you noticed during the COVID period things getting worse uh, over the past year? Uh, or is it a, is it the, is it the same problem that we're always seeing, uh, where you're talking about clickbait in terms of uh, uh, web and internet presence? But you know, are journalists uh, asking you questions now that also probably are more trivial than you'd like them to be? You know, that's a good question. I don't I don't think as much. Every now and then, I don't seem to be getting as much, and and maybe that's because. We have had so many serious things to focus on. Yeah. Um, so people's attention may be diverting more toward that. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, maybe because people didn't realize how grave this was going to be or long lasting, there were a lot of inquiries just about like sex toy sales, right? And pandemic sex and hot sex during the pandemic. And that really seems to have declined in terms of getting those questions. You know, I actually had a dream like a month ago that was it was just woke me up like laughing about this. In fact, I forgot forgot to text him and tell him this, but I had a dream that I was like sitting in like a on a stage at a bar doing like a Q&A event like we all did the before the pandemic and um and Dan Savage, who's also a sex columnist and a right. fantastic person and and friend was in the audience. And the person interviewing me was asking, you know, questions like what sort of what do we do too much of, 
you know, during sex? Like what, what's, what's too much of? And of course I was talking about, so some of my work that involves like more aggressive kinds of sex that's been hurting people. I, I do some work around choking during sex and non-consensual choking. So I was going there, like, you know, stop choking people without talking about it first. And then they were saying, like, what are we not doing enough of? And at that moment in my dream, Dan and I kind of locked eyes, you know, in the audience and had this sort of this groan. And I was like, we're not vaccinating people enough. Like, we need more vaccines. That's what we need. And, um, and you know, and, and that's, that's actually what comes to mind now, right? And so maybe actually some of our, our media conversations are going where they need to be, which is, um, you know, how do we, how do we become safe? Yeah. Um, but that's not to say I still don't get some of the, the silly things, too. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Indiana University's Debbie Herbenick about relationships and intimacy during COVID. So you have launched these big national surveys. You, you've been directing this for a while. Are you, I'm assuming, are you going to be gearing up for another big national survey? And, and are you thinking about what kinds of questions you need you want to be asking around COVID and relationships and sex? Yes, we are. We're actually getting ready to launch another nationally representative survey soon. Um, so that that will be exciting. And we did, we sort of, we combed through the whole thing, multiple times, multiple people and perspectives saying, what are we missing about this, this topic in terms of COVID? Um, so we did find ourselves having to adjust a number or wanting to adjust a number of items to account for for things that might be different now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and because there is now, like, this is just the new normal, right? All of the people who do sex surveys now are having to to think through that. And I, you know, I talk with these colleagues around the world because we already knew that sex was changing. I mean, pre-pandemic around the world, we were all finding that frequency of sex was declining among different groups depending on the country but that was that was already happening so now how do we disentangle that from covid changes versus just typical secular changes and and that's that's complicated um and that will vary you know by the country and and what other things they need to take into account but that's that's pretty tricky so you were you've done these surveys for you know you said t- this is like the 13th or 14th survey that's, you know, now it's 14th, I guess, that you're planning if you've done this. There's a. Yeah, I think this will be the 13th. All right. Thanks. Yeah, well, it's 13 plus or minus one. You know, I, you know, I can't don't expect me to be precise. You know? uh, so, <laughs> you've done this and you've got this. And I these are kind of they're not longitudinal. They're cross. Are these just cross sectional surveys? There's one of them called the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior that does have a longitudinal component across okay. six okay. of the seven waves. All of the others are cross sectional. So what what kind of changes have you seen over that? I mean, I think it's interesting that you said that there's there's some things that you had noted just before the sort of pre-pandemic impact and that's been observed around the world, not just in your in the surveys that you've been involved with. But but are there other particular noteworthy changes that that you've seen over time? So I think one of the the difficult things about these surveys is they're rare, right? Like we literally have done almost all of them in the whole country. And um and so we don't have a lot to benchmark by. Okay. Okay. So what happens is like in 2008, we did our first nationally representative sex survey and we focused a lot on vibrator use and pleasure and sexual response and sexual function. And we found that more than half of women had used a vibrator as had almost half of men, but we had nothing to benchmark it against. Yeah. And it was, you know, and it wasn't one of the behaviors that even the other countries, I think with the exception of Australia had been tracking because mostly when, you know, in when countries could get support to do these types of surveys, 
They were for very specific purposes around tracking risk of infection or unintended pregnancy. So the behaviors generally tracked were things like vaginal intercourse, oral sex, and then anal sex and so on. So there were no population data really on sex toy use. And so, and that's happened more recently, right? Like we suddenly got focused on um, what some people call rough sex behaviors. No previous data to go by. So some of the things that we really can't tell you what the changes are, we can tell you what they think they are, cobbling together other convenience surveys to get some insights. I think, you know, the the most consistent insight around the world was that uh, decreased frequencies of sex because that's something that, that everybody was tracking to some degree anyway. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's also, it was imprecisely tracked around the world. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, some countries that said like, how often were you intimate with a partner in the past year? And others that said, how often did you have vaginal, oral, or anal sex? And then, so we actually, in our country, for our survey, we do it by behavior. So it's extremely specific. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um but I think that was also the benefit of us coming later to the game than other surveys. Other surveys kind of had to keep their consistent items that they had been using since like the 80s, right? And so in some ways, I think we benefited by being the new kid on the block, but we also have less of a history to compare to. So um, in the U.S., there was one U.S. nationally representative survey of sex conducted in the early 90s. And then ours wow. came along in 2008 and nine and so on. So we really have a very young history um, in the U.S. Finland, for example, has been tracking sex in the country since the 70s. Um, and they, they really can make some fascinating decade-by-decade comparisons that, that we just can't. This is something I would have asked you a year ago, you know, about cultural differences. Attitudes, I think Rosemary before brought up the idea of we're a little bit more puritanical. You were talking about being sort of late to the game here. So my entry into this is watching a lot of stuff during COVID, but I was doing it before because I'm retired now. So a lot of streaming (laughs) shows. So if you watch Scandinavian shows like Finnish shows or shows from Iceland or shows from France or Italy, their attitudes towards sex are very different than standard network television shows. They seem more honest more less self-conscious they don't seem to have the the standard you know the standards and practices of limiting how much we talk about sex on american television but i would like you to just talk in general about cultural differences that was a long long question yeah i you know and we could spend a whole a whole episode talking about culture and sex it is it's fascinating to me it remains fascinating to me um, you know, I had a student not long ago whose um, whose mother was from Russia, and she, uh, you know, talked a lot in her work about, um, you know, just those cultural differences that her mother has taught her, right, about like the the very common experience of young women in Russia to have abortions, to end their pregnancies, and that mm-hmm. it not being stigmatized, it being very common, mm-hmm. um, and, and that is well known about Russian culture. And, um, and, and what a difference that is here. We had some visitors from Sweden last year who um, were so interested when they visited us here in Indiana because they, they had heard that people protested abortion clinics, but they had never heard, they had never seen anything like that before. So they went on the day where like, you know, there were known to be like the weekly protests here. And they went to talk to them and ask them, like, so what are you protesting and why are you protesting? And not not in a confrontational way. They were really just so curious. And 
one of my colleagues said, you know, I was asking her, so what did, what did you ask them? You know, what, what did you want to know? And she said, well, one of them said that, well, I'm, I'm here to pray to God. And her question then was, what do you say to God? Like, what's, what are you asking for? Because being from a secular country, she was also just so curious about like, what is this conversation in prayer that you're having? And so, and, and those colleagues from Sweden, when they were here, we did a, a Bloomington Sex Salon event with them. We talked a lot about culture and they were describing, for example, the very normative experience that many Swedes have of nudity in the home and not just mm-hmm. as young children, but throughout life. And just, you know, even as teenagers, just being naked in their home around their siblings and their parents or... Um, as teenagers having partners, you know, spend the night who they're having sex with and it being and having breakfast with the family the next morning. Um, and and that's that was so surprising to my students to hear because almost none of them are from homes where it would would have been OK in high school to have had a sexual partner stay the night and um, and that be accepted by the family. So, you know, there are other countries I've worked in. Um, for example, uh, years ago, I worked briefly in Kenya. I mean, just for like, you know, I was there for like a month doing some research, but it was so informative for me to hear, um, you know, from people talk about, for example, being a co-wife, right. And, Uh, and having, um, you know, having, having other wives, uh, in the family. And I have, you know, friends and colleagues whose, um, whose families are from different countries where it's, it's very common to have, um, multiple wives and children from mm -hmm. lots of different wives and, um, and to hear how their families negotiate that. So um, there are there are different sexual practices all around the world. Um, some of them, you know, are are changing. Some of them uh, are becoming, you know, sort of more monolithic and so on. But um, I I find learning from them just really really interesting. At the same time, you know, I think like there is that dark side, right? I mean, some of the ones that have changed have been changed by force. And I can remember a a colleague who um, was very senior in our field, who's retired from um, sex research now. But when I got into it, she was on her way out, and she used to travel every year, pr- probably you know still did until the pandemic, but every year to India and would write these long diaries and share them with a bunch of us. And there was one community that she had had connection with over the years, and. It was a community where the the children would um, room together in certain ages or like these child dorms. And at some age, it became really common for them to have sexual exploration and sexual interactions with each other. But she'd been visiting for decades. And over the years that she went there, there became more governmental, quote unquote, concern, Uh, right, about this community and their norms and their cultural practices. And at some point, um, I remember one of her emails describing like that being shut down and they were no longer allowed to um to room the children together in these in these um mixed sex storms and so on and that certainly has happened in the u.s right those are our histories too of of forcing indigenous cultures to to change all kinds of cultural practices you know what you've uh you said that you've you've had the good fortune of completing the survey in april of the most recent one uh and i assume you're going through the processing of that now or have you you know, I, I, and you've mentioned a, 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 some early conclusions. I'm just, I'm just curious if there's others that you you're comfortable to sh- that you could share of sort of any other insights that you might have gleaned from the some of the first looks that you've had at this. Yeah, sure. Specific to COVID, we've we've published a couple of papers and have others coming out. Um, so one looked at the prevalence of depression and loneliness, which was very high. It was about a third of Americans 
um, wow. having depressive like uh, depressive symptoms using reliable and valid scales um, during the lockdown, the April um, 2020 lockdown. And that, you know, generally people were faring better if they had in-person contacts, right? And, and virtual um, connections were not um, making up for that difference. And so even people who had that, if that was really all they had, it wasn't, it didn't replace like hugs and kisses and, and um, partnered sex. And, um, you know, so I think to me that that's an important one. A lot of people focused on, you know, virtual sex and so on, but, um, but it, it's not enough. I mean, people like to, to touch one another. Um, we found a, a finding that I'm hoping other people do more with than, than we were able to do in our survey, but that, um, you know, parents who had more like elementary school aged kids had somewhat, they felt less affection in their lives um, during the lockdown, but parents with very young children did not. They had either the same or more. And, you know, to me, as as a parent of young children, that made a lot of sense because, I think when you have babies or young children in the home, it's very common to just have like family snuggles and cuddles. Yeah, right. And so that is, I think for many families, probably kept some physical contact and an emotion, um, sort of affection, even during stressful times. Uh, well, let's see, we've had some, some other work that's looked at relationship conflict during mm-hmm. COVID too. And again, that portion of people, it's not everybody, but that portion of people that there's just more bickering and and fighting and for some people more elevated conflict as well. Yeah, we're we're going through that data set as quickly as we can. <laughs> oh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting anecdotally it does seem like that the loss of the tactile ability to hug and be in physical contact with people who are not in your home, right? Be able to hug friends and 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 acquaintances and shake hands. Like it feels like such a loss that I don't think anyone sort of even anticipated being something that they would miss, um, the the discourse and the conversations around that have, have been really interesting to sort of follow, I think. They are. Yeah, I think that that tactile connection is incredibly important to people. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Debbie, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Debbie. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. 